The dream of a Christian utopia that the Puritans brought with them when they landed in the New World on November 1620 had completely disintegrated by the time the third generation. They had dreamed of this Christian utopia, and now it was completely gone. You see, the frontier areas in this new land had no churches in them, and they were ruled by lawlessness. Colonists from all around the world were settling next to each other, but they were, there was no unity. They were divided by intense religious differences. And then, of course, there was drunkenness and immorality and every type of sin that seemed to thrive in the new world. False doctrines flourished, and the preaching of a born-again experience was extremely rare. Flagrant sins corrupted and weakened the very few churches that did exist. Christianity was in serious decline in the new world, and it appeared to be a hopeless situation. But there was a faithful remnant within a church that was praying, and though small and seemingly insignificant, the remnant was praying for God to save the souls of their neighbors. Jonathan Edwards was a minister in Northampton, Massachusetts, and he began to preach the gospel boldly, deliberately, and with power through a series of meetings. And in December of 1734, six young people were converted. One of those converts was a young woman who was described as one of the greatest company keepers in the whole town. That's a nice way of saying that she had a lot of male friends. Edwards feared her, com- her, her conversion would snuff out the flames of the revival that seemed to be growing. He, af- he was fearful that this would happen because her reputation was such as it was. But the exact opposite happened. This young woman's life was so radically changed that it became the talk of the town. And the news was clear. It became very crystal clear that God's grace was at work here. And that spread like wildfire. This was the beginning of what would be called the Great Awakening. Over the next six months, 300 would convert to Christianity in a town of only 1,100 people. That's over 25% of the population that converted to Christ in just six months The news continued to spread all around the region. Similar revivals broke out in over a hundred towns. But it wasn't just conversions. This thing went much deeper than that. People's lives were being radically transformed. The town in Northampton seemed to be full of the presence of God. Never before had it been so full of love and joy. And it was a time when families flourished. The church was passionate about serving God, and everyone was sincere about attending worship together. New converts were extremely zealous for God. They were both bold in their evangelistic efforts and overwhelmed with a deep desire to tell others about the good news that they had heard. The Great Awakening was rippling across the colonies and reigniting the fires of Christianity. Have you ever prayed that God would do something like that in your heart? There have been many of these awakenings down through the years. Awakenings are these periods of time when God supernaturally influences believers and non-believers alike through a sudden intense interest in Christianity. 
During an awakening, people sense the presence of God in a powerful way. And there are sincere conversions, oftentimes lots of them, as well as there are many who will repent, who have drifted far from God over the course of time. I think most of us would probably agree. Our city could use an awakening like that. Our commonwealth could use something like that. Without a question, our nation would benefit from an awakening like that. We need a reawakening when spiritually things are depraved and dreadful. And this happens through spiritual erosion, which can wear away at our character, our morals, and even our faith. Spiritual erosion is so subtle that it's easy for us not even to realize it's there, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's less destructive. Everyone is susceptible to this kind of spiritual erosion. Well, last week we started a brand new series called Do It Again, God, where we looked at a time when God awakened his people. He sent the Holy Spirit. Thousands were saved. And the church, God's church, began. It happened in Acts chapter 2 at a time known as Pentecost. And as a result of this series, we've started praying that what God did in Acts 2, that he would do it again now, here. Do it again, God. A simple prayer. But what you did in Acts 2, will you do it again? Do it here? Well, the question comes, what happened after Pentecost? After this massive revival, one-day revival, 3,000 people came to Christ. What happened after the Holy Spirit's arrival and the awakening of all of these people? Well, we read in Acts 2, verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The word that Luke chooses there for devoted in Greek means literally continually, continuing steadfastly. Luke chooses a word that explains that they were continuously faithful to these key functions. They were sold out to these things. There were four functions that made up the basic template of the early church, and they focused on these things. These were the things that they did. And this strategy still serves as well as a plan for doing the church or being the church even today. It'll effectively win the attention and approval of many unbelievers. Luke shared the results of the early church at the Luke shared the results of the early church that it had even after Pentecost. Listen to what Acts 2.47 says. And enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The plan, with the assistance of the Holy Spirit at work in the followers of Jesus, gave them favor with everyone, Luke says. And more and more and more followers came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The first function that they, they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teachings. And we're going to camp here this, for this talk today. Some translations call it the apostles' doctrines. It's basically the same. The apostles' teachings refers to a set of beliefs held and taught by the apostles' 
So following the awakening of Pentecost, the first church devoted themselves to studying the apostles' teachings, the things the apostles had taught and would teach. Now why is studying the apostles' teachings so important? Dr. Bruce Milne, in his book, Know the Truth, addresses that question. He asks the question, why is the study of Christian doctrine so vital? Let me give you a couple of the reasons that he gives. First, the reason the apostles' teaching is vital is because every Christian is a theologian. You may not have thought of yourself as a theologian, as a Christian, but you are. A theologian is one who's dedicated his or her life to studying the, to the study of theology. Theology is the science of God or the study of the knowledge of God. A person's knowledge of God comes from his or her involvement with God. This interaction is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit and it's instructed by the teachings found in the Bible. Listen, it is impossible to be a Christian without being a person who has knowledge of God and who recognizes that that knowledge of God is something that should be growing all the time. Here's a key point. The more I get to know the Bible, the more I get to know Jesus. There's a strong correlation there between those two. Secondly, the reason the apostles' teaching is vital is because getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. Don't sleep on that. If we wanna know how we should share our faith or how we should make disciples or how we should worship, the answers to those questions and many more are found in the Bible. In fact, the answer to all of life's important questions are found in the study of God's word. In 1989, Ann and I and our one-year-old daughter, Bailey, made a trip to Chicago to visit an old college friend of mine. While we were there, he asked me a question I thought was kind of odd, but he said, how's your quiet time going? Now, quiet time is one of those key words, inside church words. It's, it's that time you spend studying scripture in prayer, time with God. He said, how's your quiet time going? And I didn't want to answer because it wasn't going very well. So I kind of deflected. I said something like, you know, I'm, I've spent a lot of time in the Word, working on lessons and sermons, teaching all the time. And, and he said, I get that. But how's your quiet time? He went on to ask me again and again until finally, after deflecting his question several times, I finally said, you know, to be honest, it's not going that well. I just start out well two or three days, and then before I know it, I've missed four or five days. He said to me, you know, I found that if you do something 37 times in a row, and I don't know where he got that, but he said, you do something 37 times in a row and it becomes a habit. So I decided that I was gonna read the Bible at the same time every day for 37 days in a row. And I came home and I started doing that. Three weeks later, I hadn't even made it to 37 days. I was on day 21 or so, when one of my young adult leaders came up to me, his name was Bruce, and this is what he said. Several of us have been praying for you to grow as a teacher. Now, I'm not sure how I should interpret that. Did they think I was that bad that they were actually gathering in secret prayer meetings to pray that I would get better? But I was flattered that they would actually take time to pray that I would be a better communicator of God's word. He said, several of us have been praying for you to grow as a teacher. And we were talking the other night, and we agreed. There's something different about your teaching. It's gotten better. 
Well, while I talked to Bruce that night after that comment, I thanked him for his generosity and grateful for their prayers. But in my heart and in my mind, I was communicating with God. I get it. When I spend time in your word, it changes me, and it'll make me more effective at being the communicator you need me to be. I've been meeting with God every day, almost every day since. Learning to grow in his word is essential in getting everything else right. Don't ever forget that. The extensive research project uh, on spiritual growth known as the Reveal Study was published in 2011. This was a groundbreaking landmark study. This research started with the Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, but it grew into a national research project serving, surveying over a 1,000 churches and a quarter of a million church attendees over the course of four years. The initial goal of Willow Creek and their team was to identify which of the activities and programs that they offered deliver the greatest spiritual growth to their people. They wanted to find out what would help their people better love God and love others. But what they learned was troubling to their leadership. The research generated a tremendous amount of data, but there was one key piece of information that stood out, and it was this. The most effective strategy for moving people forward in their journey of faith is biblical engagement. It was the apostles' teaching. Who knew that early church, that they were onto something? Not only was getting people into the Bible so important, but when they're in church, it seemed like that was the only time people were actually engaged in Scripture. But they wanted to get them engaged beyond that, helping them to be engaged in the Scriptures on their own time, outside of church meetings. Like a 37 day in a row kind of thing where people would meet with God on a regular basis beyond just what happened inside the four walls of the church. This is how they summed up the research. Everywhere we turned, the data revealed the same truth. Spending time in the Bible is hands down the highest impact personal spiritual practice. More specifically, Reflecting on the meaning of Scripture is the spiritual practice that is most predictive of spiritual growth. So what they were saying was, read the Bible and then reflect on it. And that has the greatest potential for spiritual growth. Here's a key point for all of us to remember. Biblical engagement, time you spend in the Bible, promotes spiritual growth. Biblical engagement promotes spiritual growth. That's why it's so important to focus on the apostles' teaching. And that's what the first church was doing. When we spend time in the Bible, we grow. And it will change us. Paul put it this way in Romans 12 too. Do not conform any longer. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the first church prioritized this studying of the apostles' teaching. And it's interesting that the first record of any of the apostles' teaching was the message that Peter preached earlier on the day of Pentecost. Luke wrote it down. It's found in Acts chapter 2, but we're going to pick it up in verse 14. So if you have your Bible or you're following along with the app, turn to Acts chapter 2, 
verse 14. This message that Peter preached not only led 3,000 people to surrender to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but it also, it's an awesome explanation of the gospel. It's an awesome explanation of the gospel. Peter's sermon explains three key facts that led 3,000 people to follow Jesus. And I want every one of you to know these three things. The first is this. Peter explained the Holy Spirit had come. Listen to what Luke writes as he records Peter's sermon in Luke chapter two, starting with verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in, their, in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The amazing event of people hearing the gospel in their own language was not the result of too much wine, as some of the critics suggested. Luke records that in verse 13 of, this, of the second chapter. It was the evidence of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's interesting. Orthodox Jews did not eat or drink before 9 a.m. on the Sabbath or on any holy days, and the Pentecost was one of those holy days. In fact, they usually didn't drink wine except with meals at all. So it's unlikely that many actually thought these apostles were drunk. Besides, drunk people don't usually know how to speak other languages that they've never studied before just because they've had a couple extras. Peter quoted the prophecy from Joel, but he didn't say that Pentecost was the fulfillment of this prophecy because you see the signs predicted, they, haven't had, they hadn't happened yet. Joel's prophecy deals with the nation of Israel during the end of time. Peter, being led by the Holy Spirit, saw an application of this prophecy for the church. His point was this. The Holy Spirit that Joel wrote about is the same Holy Spirit who was there at Pentecost. Now the reason this matters is because most Jews believe the Holy Spirit was given only to a select few but there, right in front of them, were 120 of their fellow Jews, both men and women alike, experiencing the blessing of the Holy Spirit. This was the beginning of a new era. Nothing that we'd seen before had happened like this. Jesus had finished the work of salvation, and now all that's left to do is share the gospel with the world. Well, there's a second fact that led 3,000 people to follow Jesus and Peter explained that that fact was Jesus was alive. Jesus was alive, very much alive. News traveled fast in that time. They didn't have all the technology we had. Word got around through word of mouth. And so by the time this event was happening, 
most adults in Jerusalem would have known about Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. And they'd probably heard the official announcement that his followers had stolen his body from the tomb because Jesus' disciples wanted everyone to think that he'd risen from the dead. That was the official story. But Peter told them the truth. Jesus had truly risen from the dead. And the resurrection proves that he is the Messiah. Peter gave four pieces of evidence that prove the resurrection of Jesus. Piece number one, the person of Jesus himself. We read in verse 22 and following, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Peter's preaching. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The people who were hearing Peter's message that day knew Jesus was a real person. He came from Nazareth. Some of them had actually even seen him, heard him teach, saw him perform miracles. And because he performed these miracles, many knew that Clearly, God had his hand on this man. Peter points out that the crucifixion, though it was a terrible injustice, it was also an awesome victory. Evidence that proves the resurrection. Piece number two, the prophecy of David. David prophesied that the Messiah's body would not decay in the grave. It's kind of an odd prophecy, but when Jesus actually rose from the dead, it all made sense. Listen to what Peter said in verse 29 and following. Fellow Israelites, I, tell, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. David spoke hundreds of years before about the resurrection of the Messiah and that his body would not see decay. If there was one piece of evidence that validated that Jesus truly was the Messiah, it's the empty tomb. And that's exactly what there was, an empty tomb. Evidence number three, piece number three, the witness of believers. In Acts 2, verse 32, Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. After his resurrection, Jesus didn't appear to just random people. He actually appeared to his followers, whom he had commissioned to give witness to others that he was alive. And here's the question that comes to mind. Were these people actually reliable, dependable witnesses? Absolutely. Think about it. They had nothing to gain to share a lie. In fact, the message that they were sharing led them to be persecuted, incarcerated, and some of them even paid with their own lives. A few crazy fanatics might be willing to promote a lie, but that wasn't the case here. In fact, there were thousands who believed a message, and when the message is backed up by miracles, you can't easily dismiss it. Evidence, piece number four, 
the presence of the Holy Spirit. We read in Acts 2, verses 33 through 36, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see, what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. If the Holy Spirit is in the world, then Jesus must have sent him. Joel prophesied that one day the Holy Spirit would come, and Jesus himself had promised also that he would send the Holy Spirit to his followers as a comforter. If Jesus is dead, he can't send the Spirit of God. But Peter pointed out that as you can see, my friends, the Holy Spirit is here. And that's because Jesus rose from the dead and then he sent him. Peter closed out the message declaring this, Jesus is your Messiah, but you crucified him. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter points to the fact that they killed their own Messiah. And this is a horrific injustice. And they probably were in deep regret as they hear Peter point this out. But there is still hope for them. That was the whole point of Peter's message. And it's the third fact that led 3,000 people to follow Jesus. Peter explained that Jesus came to save sinners. Listen to verse 37 and following. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. The Holy Spirit took Peter's message and convicted the hearts of the listeners, said they were cut to the heart. They asked, brothers, what shall we do? Well, it seems obvious that these men and women who were listening were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter answered by instructing them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, once you realize that Jesus can save you, that he is truly the Messiah, and he will forgive you of your sins, then your next move is to repent. Change your direction. You've been living your life for yourself, and now when you come to realize what Jesus will do for you, you're gonna change your direction and start following him and living for him. And then he said, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized into Christ. And then Peter said, when you do that, this is what will happen. Your sins will be forgiven, all of them, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You receive the forgiveness of your sins as if 
They never happened. And God remembers them no more. Every single one of them is gone forever. And then you receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God as a seal, a deposit in your life that you are God's. Verse 41 says, those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I wanna ask you two questions. Number one, have you trusted Jesus to forgive your sins? And number two, have you taken that step to repent and be baptized? If you haven't done that, and through this talk, you've been kind of feeling God nudge you to say, hey, maybe I should take some steps to look into this. I'm not telling you to do it just because I said it. I think you should just explore it. See who Jesus is. Find out how much he loves you and the fact that all of the things that you've done wrong in your course of your life, he can wash them away. He can give you a new life. Not only a life in this lifetime, but for all eternity. And he'll put his spirit in you the very spirit we were reading about in Acts 2, he'll live in you for the rest of your life. If you're interested in that, I wanna encourage you to go to the app and fill out the connect card and check the appropriate boxes. Accepting Christ, interested in accepting Christ and interested in baptism. We'd love to follow up with you on that. Or maybe you don't have the app and you're not ready to get it, I'd encourage you to get it, but if you'd rather, you can go to notes to Monty at nccleax.org. Send us an email. We'll follow up with you. We'd love to talk to you about this. Well, as I close, I want to challenge you on two things. The first is this. I want to invite you to, to, vote, to devote yourself to studying the apostles' teaching. I want to invite you to meet with God every day by reading his word and by praying we made it real easy here. We have an online Bible reading plan. This is the 2020 in the Word plan. You can get it through the app or through the website. I'd encourage you to check it out. We're in John right now. One chapter every day. Pick a time. Meet with God at the same time, 37 days in a row, and just see if that doesn't change who you are. I know it changed me. I'm never going back. The second thing is this. There's little doubt that we need an awakening in our country today. I wanna ask you to join me and a number of other Northeasters in praying that God would reawaken his church. I've heard from a number of you this week since last week's message telling me that you are praying, you're partnering with us in prayer that God would reawaken his church. And I wanna tell you how much I appreciate that. I'm grateful for your prayers. Continue to pray, calling out to God that he would reawaken his church and he would change the lives of people around us. The prayer is very simple. When you wake in the morning, pray. Just a simple prayer that God would reawaken his church. Not just this church, certainly Northeast, but all the churches in the 40509 and Lexington and the Commonwealth and beyond to the states around and to our entire nation. You certainly would probably agree with me that our nation could use that right now. And I want to ask you to pray as you pray for God to reawaken this church, that you would pray for those around you 
in this region who don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. As you pray for people in the 40509 to come to Christ, God will bring certain people to your mind. Maybe some of them are your friends or neighbors or coworkers or family members who are not part of the family of God. Pray for them specifically to come to know Christ and pray that God would give you an opportunity to share what Jesus means to you with them. Pray, calling on God to reawaken his church. Let's pray together. God, as we talk about the first church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, we realize just how blessed we are to have the Bible in its form. It gives us insight into who Jesus is. It tells us how much you love us. And it tells us how much, how much uh, you put out for our benefit, what you put into this world for us. You tell us through your word not only all the sacrifices that Jesus made, but you tell us how to live a life that would be reflective of him. And for that, God, we are so thankful for the Bible. God, there is so much going on in our world today. It's created a lot of uncertainty. Coronavirus, riots, forest fires, hurricanes, and all of it's happening during a contentious political season. It is clear, God, we need you more than ever. Will you please reawaken your church? God, please forgive us of our sin and heal our land. I pray for our nation. I pray, God, for our leadership. I ask, God, that you would guide their steps. I pray for those, Lord, who are not yet part of your family. I pray for the 40509 people who are far from you here. I pray, God, that somehow, whether it be through this church or another church or for, through the testimony of someone, they will hear the truth about how much you love them and everything you did for them, and they'll turn to you. God, unite us together as a church to pray. God, fill us with your spirit as you reawaken your church. And then, God, will you just flow through us to change the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in with us today. Be sure you're staying connected by following NCC Lex on all social media platforms. Also, if you'd like more information on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, drop us a message on social or just shoot an email over to notes to at nccleks.org. You guys have a blessed week and we'll see you soon.